Amen. Thank you, Ted. Good morning. Um, I'm going to start off a little different with just the message uh, before we get into the message. Just appreciate your prayers for me even this morning. Uh, you know, Dr. Sayer started us off this morning talking about last week's passage. And the way last week started was, for I want you to know the struggle I have. And, and that whole idea there was Paul's struggle in following what God had asked him to do. But this idea of struggling, that, that what that reveals is the value of Christ. And this week, and, and thinking of that, of Paul just doesn't say, you know, this is the struggle. He says, I want you to know the struggle. Even in our community group, we were talking about the encouragement that we receive when we can see the struggle that others have because what it reveals as, is that this treasure is worth it. And I'm just putting it out there. This week has been a struggle. There have been many wonderful things that have happened this week, but there have been many very difficult elements of this week, many uh, meetings, many uh, burdens, and, and what I normally want to be in and coming and having a whole outline and all these things just wasn't afforded in that way. And yet that whole time with that struggle, the constant element of knowing Christ is worth it. And then the comfort of knowing that his grace is sufficient, that his word is true, that his spirit is is active, that in my weakness, we see his strength. And this morning, I'm just more aware of my weakness. The weakness was there all the other weeks as well, but this morning I'm more aware of it. But do you ever find yourself not knowing what you're supposed to do? You have a deep desire to do what is right, to make the right decision, to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, but you just don't know what that looks like right now. What is the next step I'm supposed to take? Any, anyone here feel that way sometimes? Yeah, me too. How incredible would it be if someone would just tell you what to do? Some of you, myself included, have some authority problems, and so you might think, well, I don't know if I really want someone to tell me what to do, but, but, but put it in this, this perspective. What if you came to that point where there's a decision that needs to be made, and you know what decision you should be taking? That would be nice. It would be really comforting when you're like, man, there's a fork in the road here. I'm not sure if it's left or right. And the GPS turns on, turn left to stick with Jesus. Okay, that would be a really pleasant idea. A few weeks ago, I was at this conference and I was given a beautiful copy of Pilgrim's Progress, but it was adapted for, uh, it's a children's, the children's version. And so each picture is, is a full color. It's a really well-written and so the last several weeks, I've been reading through it with my kids. And if you aren't familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory, so it's an illustration. It's, it's looking at the Christian life and imagining, what if this was a journey? What if this looked like an adventure? And the author kind of describes different elements of our walk with Christ in this story of, of how this individual, this pilgrim named Christian, this burden that he was on him that, that symbolizes the shame and guilt of sin, and then reaching the cross and for that burden to fall off. And then throughout, it's this journey of leaving the city of destruction and heading towards the celestial city. But what keeps happening, there's a common thread that is woven throughout each chapter, each page that there is something that Christian is meant to do. Don't stray from the narrow path. Constantly he has different individuals that he encounters, some who are calling him to leave the path, and others are encouraging him to stay on the path. 
There are times where alternate routes, other paths are presented to Christian that seem way more plausible. The path that he, the path that he is given is often narrow and treacherous. There are mountains and hurdles to overcome, while the other paths appear smooth and easy. But he is told to stay on the narrow path. Other times where it's hard for Christian to even see the path at all. Times where he is in the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. And all he can see is maybe just the very next step. And it would seem easier. Let me go back. Let me go back to what I know. Stay on the path. Other times the narrow path seems to be a path of real danger. As lions appear roaring along the path as they prowl and seek pilgrims to devour but he must stay on the narrow path. Do you think that Christian in Pilgrim's Progress had times where he just wanted to know what to do? Were there times where he wanted to be given the entire map of the journey with each danger circled and said, okay, at this point, you're gonna encounter this and this is what you do and here's every single step and you can know from here all the way to the end everything that's going to happen, every decision you should make. That would have been nice. Kind of that GPS idea where I don't have to think about this journey. I don't need to think, you know, if, if you remember, some of you don't, of, of printing out the instructions and then you had the person sitting next to you and says, okay, we're supposed to turn left on Route 92. Oh, no, we missed it. What do we do now? And then the whole process. And now when we have a GPS where you just don't even have to think about any of it, it just tells you, turn left, turn left. Oh, recomputing, you made that wrong. Okay, here's what you can still do. That would be nice, but what was Christian told to do? See, he was given what he needed. It might not have been what he wanted, but he was given what he needed. Stay on the path. This morning, for the first time in the letter of Colossians, Paul is going to tell us what we need to do. Finally, I've been waiting for someone to tell me what to do. And finally, Paul is going to do that. And yet, what Paul tells us to do might not be the solution we would naturally look for or even choose. Paul isn't going to hand us a map with every danger circled. Over the next few weeks, we are going to highlight some specific dangers in chapter 2. He is going to say, avoid these things, watch out for this danger... But first, he's going to give us our first command in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Paul is going to give us the solution we might not necessarily want, but it's the one we need. Here's our big idea this morning. Walk in Christ through Christ's work in you. Walk in Christ through Christ's work in you. Let's read our passage this morning, only two verses. Verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Before we go bit by bit through the whole passage, I think it's helpful for us to just remember the whole of the argument that, Col- that Paul is presenting to the Colossian church. One of the elements that is important for any book that you're studying, but really specifically in Colossians, is to understand how does this all work together? Not to look at each piece as, as its own thing, but at seeing it as part of the bigger argument. So what have we seen so far? We can really divide Colossians into three main parts. We just finished the first part. The first section deals with truth. Colossians 1.1 through chapter 2 verse 5, Paul is proclaiming and reminding the Colossians of truth. He wants us to see what Christ has done. He wants us to see who Christ is. What we saw even last week, that Christ is the true treasure. We're going to get into the the, the question more later, but just as an introduction, why does Paul start with truth? Why spend so much of this book, a whole third of the book, just in proclaiming 
truth. Because truth precedes transformation. He doesn't start with, this is what you do. He starts with, this is what you must know. And once that truth is established, he'll get to the transformation, but the start of it is in proclaiming truth. Has Paul revealed truth to us? Yeah. Has he revealed that truth precedes transformation? It does. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 1, we see this in his prayer. He says, And so, from the day we heard, the day that we heard of, of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does he want for them? Truth. He wants them to know truth. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What would that be? Transformation. I want you to know this so that you may be transformed. Look at Paul's emphasis on truth. Be filled with the knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom, all spiritual understanding, that it may lead to transformation, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's Paul's main goal in the first section. He wants to saturate the Colossians with truth because that's what precedes transformation. So if this first section is all about truth and truth is shared with the goal of transformation, what would another section of the book be? Not a trick question. Transformation. There you go. Transformation is the goal. And we see that in the third section. Chapter through, 3 through verse of chapter 4 is all of the very practical ways in which we are to be transformed. He's going to give lots of commands in chapter 3. He's going to tell them, this is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy. This is the practical application of of the truth you now know. So if we have truth and transformation, if that's section one and section three, what would section two be? You have it in your handout, so you can cheat. It's the threat. Because there can be a disconnect. Is there any element in which the truth is not true? Is this a relative truth? Is this a truth that only becomes true as we experience it? No, this is true. Whether you accept it or whether you reject it doesn't change that this is true. But it will only change you if you are standing firmly in that truth. And so the threat is anything that would cause you to reject that truth. The threat would be anything that would cause you to depart from that. This is the narrow path. This is the foundation. The threat then is anything that would pull us away. And so as we're going to go in this next section, in section two, anything that would call us away, that's the threat that Paul's going to address. But right now, in this section that we are beginning today, Paul is going to develop. He's going to both show us what's coming He's going to, it's kind of a hinge between the first section to the next. Paul is going to wrap up where we've been. He's going to point us where we are going and he's going to offer a protection for where we are. So let's look at the passage once again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What is Paul's goal for the Colossians? Walk in him. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open and just look at Colossians 1. Are there any commands that you can see in the entire first chapter? Anything that Paul says, do this. The word that we have here is called an imperative. Imperatives are found all throughout Scripture. These are commands we are meant to follow. So as you look through Colossians 1 all the way up to verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, can you find any other command? I don't mean to talk about a goal or desire, but something that he flat out says, you must do this. You're not going to find one. The entire beginning of the book of Colossians does not have a command. That doesn't mean that there's not elements that we are still called to apply, 
But all of these are indicatives. What that means is these are truths revealed. This is what Paul is saying. This is truth. And we've already, as we've gone over the last several weeks through Colossians, have we had elements that we have applied to our lives? Absolutely. But it's an application that is implied, not explicit. Here we get to the explicit. Paul is going to say, this is the command for you. You who are believers, you who are saints, you who are brothers in the faith, walk in him. It's clear. It's the command for us. So what does this command mean? One of Paul's favorite words in the letter of Colossians is the preposition in. And he uses it a lot. He keeps on using it to describe the sphere in which an action is meant to occur. If I can ex- explain this a little bit, if, if one of my kids comes to me and says that they are scared and they're having a hard time sleeping and, and they come and I say, here, come here. And I wrap them into a hug and I say, you are safe in my arms. What is the sphere of safety for them? In my arms. They might not feel safe other places. That, that guarantee is not out of my arms. What I am saying is you are safe where? Here in my arms. A different way of of explaining that would be even if, uh, again, and I'm not saying that this ever happens, but that my kids are so wild and they're driving us a little crazy and we say, go outside and play in the yard, in the fence. Again, never happens. Um, They are a joy at all times. But if I tell them, go outside and play in the yard, in the fence, I am giving them a command And within that command, there is a specific realm that that command should be accomplished. Where are they meant to play? In the yard, in the fence. If they go and say, well, dad, we went outside and we played. Is there freedom in that command where I can say, look, you can be go on the trampoline, you can make uh, play pretend, you can do all of these things, you can ride your bikes. All of those are free to them. But there's a restriction. Where must all of this command happen? If they decide to play outside of the fence, out on the road, are they still accomplishing what I have told them to do? No. So what Paul is saying here, walk in him. The sphere in which this command is meant to be accomplished is within Christ. So what does that mean? It means that no matter what we do, we must not be in any way departing from the person of Christ. It means that there should be no part of our life that we could point to and say it was done somewhere else. It was not done in Christ. We see this concept in the passage that was read earlier in John 15. In John 15, Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples and he gives the same instructions to his disciples as Paul is giving now. John 15, 4 says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's a different metaphor, but do you see that it's the same truth? Walk in him. Abide in him. Where is all of the command accomplished? Where does all of this truly happen? In Christ. See, this is our narrow path that is given to us. This is the clear instruction that that does not reveal every danger, does not give us the, the headlights to be able to see the whole path and miles and miles to come. This is the lamp for our feet. This is what reveals right now, I abide in him. I walk in him. 
Why was Christian told to not stray from the narrow path? Was it in order to make it harder for him? Was it like when, when, when you have all of these, these Navy SEALs, uh, well, not Navy SEALs, but recruits that want to become Navy SEALs, and they go and, and they have this whole program, and, it's, and they have the, the, what's called Hell Week? Is it just to make it harder and say, you know what, let's weed out the people who are not supposed to be here? Is that why God made the narrow path? No, it's to protect us. It's for his glory. The narrow path is for our good. Walk in him, not because I just want to add things to make this harder. Walk in him because this is for our good. And it's for his glory. We don't take the whole map. We don't have the GPS. But the way we determine what we are supposed to do is we ask, am I still walking in Christ? If I take this path, am I following the commands that God has given me to do? So we've determined that that, that what the command means is that we walk in Christ, that everything we do happens within that sphere, that it still is within what Christ would have us do. But that command, that concept of in versus out is easier to understand when we're talking about a literal place, when my kids um, can say, be in the fenced part, don't be outside of it. What does that mean when we're talking about a person? What does that command look like? Well, like I said, we're going to see most of that in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to see a lot of very practical applications of what that looks like. But I do want to look at it a little bit right now. For me, one of the ways I benefit is just by seeing examples of this. Give me an example of what this looks like. Within the Old Testament, we are given two people closely related within a chapter of each other that are said that they walked with God in the Old Testament. Anyone know the two people that walked with God in the Old Testament? Noah and Enoch? Yeah, both of them. Enoch, grandfather of of Noah, they walked with God. Genesis 5.22 says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's somewhat helpful, but that's probably not going to be our story. I don't think it's going to be, I walked with God and then God took me. It might happen, but probably not. But then we look at Noah's example. Because Noah, it says in John, Genesis 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Do you know what the context is for Noah when it talks about Noah walking with God? How many people were walking with God in the days of Noah? No one else. No one else. Before, it talks about all of the evil that is happening. After, it talks about the days that Noah is living. It's a bad time. But Noah walked with God. What did that look like? It looked like him doing whatever God asked him to do. Do you think when Noah was a little boy, his dad took him and said, Noah, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. Someday God's going to come tell you and he's going to tell you to build a boat. It's going to be a big boat. I know you don't know what that is because you've really never had a flood before, but it's, it's going to happen and you need to be ready for that. Did Noah have the whole map? What did Noah have? The narrow path. Walk with God. See, that's what it looks like to walk with God. It's not that you know every step of what's going to happen five miles down the road. It's that you know that this next step is what God is asking me to do. Sometimes that's going to look like waiting. I'm not exactly sure what the next step is, but I know that where I am right now is not sinful. I don't have the, the sense that God has told me to step forward. And so I'm going to wait in him, even though I want to move forward. Sometimes it's moving forward. I don't want to go there. I'm comfortable here, but I feel like God is showing me this is what you need to do. 
Other times it's easier when there is clearly sin involved, where there is a temptation, and you can say, no, if I were to do that, I would no longer be walking in him because he's holy. He's set apart. Now, just a, a, a fast application here. Sometimes we think that walking in Christ, is there an element of being set apart, of being holy? Yes. But being set apart is not the same thing as being of separatism. When did Noah walk with God? In evil days. Sometimes I think we think that walking with Christ looks like us just being completely separated from the world. We are to be set apart from the world. We are not to be separated from the world. There's nuances there, so please understand how I'm defining what I'm saying. What I mean is, we are to be in the world. We are to be interacting with unbelievers. We are meant to let them see the treasure that we have in Christ. Being set apart, walking in a way that is, is glorifying to God does not mean, well, we are just going to build our own thing here. We are going to lock the doors out there. We'll have uh, Walmart deliver the food that we need. We don't need to go out. We can stay right here. No, that is not what we're called to, to do. We walk in him. We have that example in Noah. Do we have, though, a greater example of what it looks like to truly walk the way you're meant to walk. Christ. Christ. In all of human history, there has only ever been one to perfectly accomplish their purpose. See, when we want to know what does it look like to walk in Christ, it's not something that we have to wonder too much because we can just look at how Christ walked. This narrow path where we're trying to get from point A to point B is not a narrow path that we need to forge ahead and, and, and create a path for us where God gives us a machete and says, all right, you got to get from here to there, figure it out. You know, start cutting through the brush and see where you get. The narrow path was plowed by another. The narrow path was established by one who has already walked it. Who walked it? Christ walked it. Walking in him is walking the path he has already walked. So what we are called to do, what we do, how do we walk or, or what does it look like to walk in Christ? It means following his example. It means according to his design and his desire. Earlier in Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's according to his design. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God created us according to a specific design. We were created through him and for him. The encouragement for us is that we're not alone on this journey. First, because we are walking in Christ, but also because we are given the blessing of the body of Christ that's walking the same path. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be, do the exact same thing. I have been called to be a pastor. Not all of you have been called to that. Ba pastor Billy has. There's probably a number of others of you who also have been called to that. But the fact that you aren't called to that does not mean that you are not also walking the narrow path. So some of the nuances might look different, but for all of us, we are following the example of Christ and we can encourage one another in doing that. Because we're walking in Christ through Christ's work in us. So now let's, let's move on and consider the why. Why should we walk in him? What foundation is given for us to actually strive to accomplish this monumental task? Well, Paul actually answers that question very succinctly. He answers it with one word. Therefore. Right at the beginning of your passage. Therefore. 
That word gives us the answer to why should we walk in him? Why? What does the word therefore cause us to do? Look back. What has he already revealed? All of chapter one, chapter two through one through five, all of this is truth. This is what has been revealed to you. This is who you are in Christ. Therefore, walk in him. Why do I walk in him? Because of who he is and because of what he's done. Remember, this is the first explicit command that we are given. But does that mean that there, wasn't, there was nothing for us to apply before this? No. Up to now, rather than imperatives, Paul has been giving indicatives. Paul has been telling us what to do. And now, he, and because he's been telling us what is true. In Colossians 1, 15 through 18, we see this beautiful picture of who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things. We have this beautiful passage. How does that truth impact our walk? Well, that truth precedes transformation. Let me try to connect this to a few different areas in our life because one of the, the realities that we need to understand is we have a desire of just, just tell me what to do. Just, just give me the next step. And so there can be a desire to go to scripture and just say, just find the commands. Preach, preach the imperatives. Find where that starts. And so we could just start and like, well, where's the first imperative of Colossians? Well, it's here in, in verse six. So let's just start there. But the Bible doesn't start there. Even the very beginning of the Bible, where does it start? Truth. In the beginning, God created. It doesn't start with imperatives. It starts with truth. That concept is one that we need to understand. And just let me, again, connect this in a few ways. What does that mean for our church? It means that we we have committed to preach expository messages going through books of the Bible. Why? Because there's a temptation to just do the big passages that will tell us what to do. For us to jump to Romans 12, do not be conformed. That's a good thing. And we should follow that. But we need to understand that Romans 12 comes after 11 chapters of truth. We want to know what the truth is because that's our foundation. If I just go to someone on the street and say, walk in him, they have no foundation. We need to actually know what, is the, what does the Bible say. So that is our why we are doing this. We proclaim truth, not just application. We don't have a bunch of, of series that say five steps to a happy marriage. It's not that we don't think the Bible answers those questions. But we think that the foundation for those questions is the truth that is all around it, not just the command. See, this idea of truth preceding transformation also impacts our parenting. How often do we parent primarily through imperatives and not also the indicatives? Where we just have all of these lists of rules for our kids. Don't do this, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do this, do that. But there's no foundation to it. What what happens when they come to something that they've never encountered before? What happens when they don't have the foundation of truth beyond just the narrow application that they've seen of it? It impacts how we counsel brothers and sisters. There's an idea of, well, just stop it. Don't do that. They need the foundation. It impacts the expectations of the world around us. Can we really expect a world to live as those transformed if they have rejected the truth? No, they need the truth. It impacts our personal walk where we might want to say, just I, just, I can do it. I just need to do this. No, you need to know something before that. Truth precedes transformation. See, this is going to be really important with what's coming next in the rest of chapter two. Paul is going to reveal these other arguments that would seek to delude them, to pull them away. And so what he's done is he said, this path, this really is where you're supposed to be. 
This is the right path. Don't stray for it from it. It's true. See, if we don't actually know that this is true, then what are we doing? We're finding our own way. If the way has not been revealed to us, if the truth has not been revealed, then the only thing we can do is use our own logic. But our hearts are deceitful. That's not going to work. And so we need to understand the truth before we get to the command. Truth is the foundation for the transformation that we're being called to. And here's the wonderful thing. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And you might be thinking, okay, Stephen, I get it. I recognize this is what I am called to, but this is not new information for me. I came this morning already knowing I'm supposed to walk in him. That, that element of the why or even the what, that's not my issue. The issue for me is not what or why, it's how. How do I do this? Because I want to. And I think I know what I'm supposed to do, but the how, I'm, that's the part that I'm really struggling with. Just tell me what to do so I can accomplish this. Well, Paul gives us four different pieces of how we walk in Christ, how we follow the command But I'm going to, before I jump into it, I'm going to give a preview of the answer. Because I think that our natural human desire is to, again, tell me what to do. Tell me how I accomplish this. And what we're going to see in the rest of, of the way Paul tells us how we do this is that you, I, don't. We don't do this. We do not accomplish this in our strength. Even here, Paul is going to point the one who causes us to walk in him is not us, it's him. See, this first part, as we are commanded to action, as we are commanded to walk in him, it is accomplished by Christ. And we see that in the first part of of verse six where it says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in. In him. When I first was looking at this passage, I, I kind of assumed that the word as there meant since you have received the Lord, because you have received the Lord, meaning it would be answering the why question. Why should you do this? Because you've received him. That's not it. That as word means in the same manner. So, in the same manner that you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's explaining how this happens. So the question then is, if it's in the same manner, the question, the first question we need to ask is, how did we receive him? Well, verse 4 of chapter 1, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, how did we receive him? We received him by faith. What else happened? It was according to what we were taught, verses 5 and through 7 of chapter 1. Because of the hope laid up for you, of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So how did we receive it? First, we received it by faith, according to what we were taught, according to the work of Christ. What it says in verses 13 through 14 is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are reconciled because he is making peace by the blood of the cross in verse 20. Verse 22 and 23, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How did we receive him? By faith, according to what we were taught, according to the work of Christ. That word received there has uh, some interesting connotations. It's the idea of a tradition that is passed on, oral tradition. It's what you receive, what you were taught, what you learned, what you accepted. 
This is really going to come into play next week when we look at verse 8. Because what Paul is presenting is, this is the tradition of Christ. This is the tradition you must cling to. Compared to verse 8 of chapter 2, which is, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So how did we receive? By faith, according to what was taught, according to the work of Christ. Therefore, if it's in the same manner that we receive that we are to walk, how are we to walk? By faith, according to what we have received or been taught, according to the work of Christ. The second question, though, then is, who did we receive? Not just how did we receive, who did we receive? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. All three titles are important. As you received Christ, the anointed Messiah, the one that God chose, the one that God gave. As you received Christ, Jesus, not an idea, not just a concept. Jesus, the literal, physical man, son of God, son of man who came to this earth, who lived the way we could not live, who died the death we deserve to die, who was risen on the third day as we are going to celebrate next week. This real person, Christ the Messiah, Jesus, the real person, the Lord. What position does he have over us as you received him as your kingdom king? When we talked about earlier uh, in chapter one, he delivered you out of the domain of darkness and transferred us where? Into the kingdom of his beloved son. If it's the kingdom of his beloved son, what does that make the son? The king. He's the Lord. All things were created through him. All things by him, for him. He is before all things that in everything he might be preeminent. So if it's in the same manner that we received Christ Jesus the Lord, how do we walk? We walk with him as the object, that he is the Christ, he is Jesus, he is our Lord. See, what we need to understand is that the same power that saved us is the same power that sanctifies us. What, what we often believe and we are strong at in in Protestant and Christian circles is saved by faith. Not a work that we did, not that we may boast. It is all, everything that he did. Where we sometimes then depart from that is to say, saved by faith, sanctified by works. It's not the way it works. We are saved through him. We are sanctified through him. The whole process is him. Are there elements in which we have a responsibility to respond? Yes, it is. We did respond by faith. Do we actually have to walk? Yes, but what, how does all of that happen? It is through his strength. See, this is what Paul talks about in Galatians 3. Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's the threat that's gonna come. Hey, you need to do these other plausible arguments, but they're according to our strength, not his. The next part that he shows of how we do this is that we are rooted and built up in him. If this is how we follow the command, if we follow the command by being rooted and built up in him, I think the question we naturally ask is, how do I become more rooted? How do I build myself up? After all, if he commanded me to do this and this is how we do it, tell me what I'm supposed to do. This is not an action that we do. See, those two verbs, as well as the one that comes next, established, all of those have one common element to them. They are all passive. What that means is that we receive this action. We don't do that action. We do not root ourselves. We do not build ourselves up. We do not establish ourselves in the faith. It's something that needs to be done for us. And this first one, though, is also slightly different from the next two. This rooted 
If some of you enjoy English and, and grammar, this first one is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means once and for all. It's done. When Jesus was on the cross and he says, it is finished, which we are going to look at on Friday, when he says it is finished once and for all time, it's done. It doesn't need to be done again. It's finished. That's what Jesus says about us being rooted. You are rooted. You have been rooted. How? When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he saved you and put you in him. We are rooted in him. See, that's what that passage that we talked about. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. We are rooted in him. We don't need to say, well, how do I become more rooted? You're totally rooted. The source is already completely available to you. The question is, are we utilizing the privilege we've been given? The, the, the goal here is not to become more rooted. The goal is to take advantage of what we already have. We then have, though, being built up. Built up is not in the perfect tense. It's in the present tense, meaning this is an ongoing process. Because we are rooted, because we have a strong foundation, we should be built up in him. Then goes on to being established in the faith just as you were taught. That, that all of this, this fear, it happens within the faith. What, what, what did we receive? What faith are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel. That God is holy. That he is set apart. That we were not, we sinned. We were separated from him. But Christ came. And he died in our place. The son of God took on our sins and he conquered death. And then the response for all who do believe him, he gives them the right to be children of God. If we have received him, we are rooted. We are being built up. We are established in the faith. I need to give just a brief warning or a plea that there are some here that you're not sure if you have that. All of these elements, when the command to walk in him, how do we do that? Not through us. How do we do that? Because we are rooted in him, we are built up in him, we are established in him. If you have not been saved, you are not afforded that blessing. You can't walk in him because you are not in him. And, and you might think, well, just give me the answers. As long as I know the next thing to do, I can accomplish this. You can't. Truth precedes transformation. And you have rejected or are unaware of the truth. If you're not certain of your position in the truth of what Christ has done, of your response in that, you need to address that. And I have good news for you. We would love to help you with that. We would love to take you on this journey of finding truth so that then you can join us on the journey of walking on the narrow path because it's for your good and his glory. And I know people here, our members here would love to do that because even this week, Cindy came to my office and the whole time that we were talking, she's, I want to help people with this. I'm thinking of starting this Bible study with people from my school. I want to go through this book of what is the gospel so that I can show them what is truth. We have many people who would love to help you with that. So if you know you're not there already, or if you're questioning whether you're there, not there, please talk to us because you have a beautiful journey that you can be a part of and you don't want to stay in the city of destruction. The very end though, we have the last part of how we do this. And this one is something that we do. The lion's share, he does it. But we get to the very end and it says, abounding in thanksgiving. We have a path to walk, but it isn't through our strength. It isn't a path that we discover and that we need to create. It's a path we follow. 
but it's not a burden too great because it is accomplished through his strength. Is that not a reason to say thank you? This abounding in thanksgiving, it's a word Paul loves to use. It's, it's overflowing. It's the river that's flowing and it goes over the barrier and it overflows and it touches everything. That is what thankfulness should be to the Christian. If we really understand the truth, we should be overflowing with thankfulness because this has been done for me. It's not just a theological concept. This is real. It's practical. It has touched me and I'm thankful. Does that honor God? It does. Is it pleasing to him when we say thank you? It does. But there's another part of thankfulness that we've talked about earlier when we've addressed thankfulness in Colossians. What does thankfulness do? It protects us. Is the narrow path difficult to walk? Is there a temptation to think that there might be a better path? But if you are so overwhelmingly thankful for the path that you are on, the blessing you have been given, you are so much more likely to see that these other paths are lies. Abounding in thanksgiving because of what he's done. Do we just wish that we knew what to do? We do. We know what to do. We walk in Christ. And that might not be the solution that we would want, but it's the solution we need. We walk in Christ. That's our narrow path. So help me out. What must we do? Walk in Christ. Why? Because the truth has been revealed. Because we know, therefore, walk in him. How? Through his strength. Because as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, both how we received him and who we received, that is what should lead us to walking in him. It is through that strength. It is because he has rooted us and he's building us up and is establishing us in the faith. We do it through his strength, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in Christ through Christ's work in you. Father God, we can only do this through your strength. And Lord, we are so often lose our way and we so often are overwhelmed by this world of thinking, what do I do next? And yet, Lord, we have an example in you that we can follow. We have the strength from you to allow us to follow. Lord, allow us to take advantage of the immense blessing and privilege that we have, that we are rooted in you, that we are built up in you, that we are established in the faith just as we were taught. Protect us from the threat that would seek to call us away from you because the truth is found in who you are and what you have done. And that truth is meant to transform us so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. But Lord, if, if in that journey we are deluded by other paths, deluded by plausible arguments, and we depart from the truth, that transformation will not happen. Lord, help us to walk in Christ because of Christ's work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.